Yeah. It's known in the NBA. Everybody says it. And I hope if you come to this podcast, Round Ball Roundup, utahjazz.com, JP China, I've refrained from using cliches. I've tried to keep it away from the platitudes because you deserve more. But we heard it today at jazz practice. The great thing about the NBA is we, we get to play again tonight. So. It's like the basketballs bouncing in the background of shoot-around. The taking it one game at a time. Let me know. Other NBA cliches. Hashtag NBA cliche. But this last weekend for the Jazz is the reason that type of saying came up in this league. We'll review the two losses for the Texas teams. You'll hear part two of that conversation with Thurl Bailey. He gets into the craftsmanship of being a game analyst as opposed to a studio analyst. He'll discuss both of those things and his life growing up that led him to Utah. And we'll preview the week ahead for the Utah Jazz. The podcast is brought to you by Fanatics for authentic Utah Jazz player gear including jerseys, shorts, warm-ups, and more, visit fanaticsauthentic.com slash utahjazzgu. That's fanaticsauthentic.com slash utahjazzgu. So the cliche gets borne out trying to get through losses. There are ruts, there are points during a season in the NBA where just teams don't have it, and it appears out of the All-Star break, Utah didn't have it against San Antonio and against Houston. Games were decided pretty early. Against the Spurs, Utah was down by 19 at the half, ended up losing 113-104. to Turnovers were a huge issue. 7 for San Antonio, 17 for Utah, and the Spurs forced 12 steals. So live ball turnovers, those going the other way, where you see swings in offensive rhythm, The Spurs didn't shoot this crazy percentage from the mid-range like they did in the first outing between these two teams in January. They still played really well. 21 of 53 in the mid-range. Mid-range will come back into play when it comes to Houston. Stay tuned for that. It was just an efficient night from DeJounte Murray. 10 of 16 from the field. He only shot one three. He had 23 points as he was one of four Spurs starters to be in double figures. Utah couldn't get off offensively. Team leaders in scoring were Emmanuel Moutier and Rudy Gobert. Both had 18 apiece. This is a really good game from Emmanuel as he was attacking and going straight to the rim, driving the action. He played late in the game, and that's a really good mindset to see from that guy who may not be playing once Mike Conley's out there but still comes in ready to go and can provide that type of spark off the pine. He had a fine offensive showing. It just wasn't there for everybody else. Donovan, 5 of 14, 12 points. Boyan Bogdanovich, 3 of 13 for 15. Joe Ingles facilitated 8.7 assists. Didn't shoot the ball well, 3 of 10. And the follow-up effort was just as tough. Against Houston, Saturday, Utah loses the tiebreaker. Rockets take the season series two games to one, 120 to 110, the victory for them. If these two are tied in the standings at the end of the year, Houston gains the advantage due to the head to head record. And if you're looking at head to head, this is not the team that you want to play in the postseason. They are knowing exactly how to play with this pocket rocket lineup. Nobody above 6'6. Launching threes, 20 of 48 on the night. But the most effective part of it, 
their stars went off. 38 from Harden, 34 from Westbrook. Russ, 14 of 26, efficient night. Four times he went to the free throw line, and he made all of them. Harden only went to the line nine times, made six, and he went 13 of 23 from the field. The talking point coming out of it has to be Russ being guarded by Rudy Gobert in one of the many defensive schemes that you'll see being employed on a Rockets team. They just are going to provide these crazy matchups and keep coaches up at night as to how to defend it. They have so many shooters on the floor and so much to work with. You have to do something a little bit screwy, a little bit different. Having Rudy on Russ... It allowed Westbrook to get his mid-range shot off. And if you asked him after the game, he called it his cotton shot because it goes straight through the net. Westbrook gets those mid-range shots, of which he's converting 40.9% according to NBA.com. He went 7 of 13 Saturday night. This is probably the best way to keep Rudy shelling off the rim. It'd be difficult to put him on P.J. Tucker, who is their de facto big. He would drag Rudy out toward the three-point line. But since Russ isn't shooting three-pointers, and since he's just attacking and trying to drive straight to the hole, this is the best way to guide him off and also deal with what Houston is trying to do. They just are a tough matchup. And one of the top teams in terms of offense in this league, they played like it. Second-best offensive rating. Mike D'Antoni says that he wants to see that tick up to number one with the moves that they made. No more Clint Capella, all relying on Russ and Harden. And they could get there if they continue to shoot the ball so well from three. Utah did not do that on their own right. Seven of 31 from deep. And just a tough night for anybody not named Donovan Mitchell. Spider goes for 31, 12 of 24. Had a bounce back effort from what he did the night before. Boyan Bogdanovich struggled 3 for 10. Mike Conley at 5 of 15 for just 13 points. Against Houston, Utah's going to need to can those threes, of which they're the number one three-point shooting team, so theoretically it would improve. And they have to take advantage of the offensive rebounds. With all the height advantage that Utah has, that needs to bear out in just six offensive rebounds. This one, like San Antonio, decided... Well in advance, down 15 heading into the fourth quarter. That's the weekend. We'll look at the week ahead after you hear from Thurl Bailey. Part two of our conversation with the jazz analyst, we discuss his upbringing, his career in Utah, and what motivated him to choose basketball as a thing that he wanted to apply his trade. Here's Thurl Bailey. Well, my motivation was really one guy. Um... Basketball wasn't a part of my early life. I was more into interested in my education because my parents basically said that the only way you're going to get out of this bad neighborhood is to be educated and be able to communicate with people. And so really focused on my grades and I wasn't allowed to bring C's or below home. I'd be in trouble because my mom said, well, I don't raise, we don't raise average kids. So I don't want to see any average or below grades. So the pressure was on us as kids to, to really make school a priority, especially during that time when, you know, the, in the civil rights culture, the African-American culture, there weren't a lot of, you know, successful or scholarships going to black kids. So, you know, we, we had to be equipped with what we needed to survive in a tough, 
tough area and a tough world. So that was number one priority. But basketball kind of found me. I watched the basketball game with my dad. I was young and early teenager in my early teens and saw Dr. J play one of his first. I didn't even know who he was. And my dad told me he was Dr. J. And, and I asked him if doctors could play in the, in the uh, professional league. <laughs> yeah, and so that's, that's how much I knew about professional basketball. But it excited me so much when I saw Dr. J perform that I wanted to be him. And that really started the path, the journey of me wanting to learn how to play because my goal was to be Dr. J. And so, um, you know, I took the same route a lot of players would take. And junior high school, I was cut twice and I made it my last year. But I wasn't very good until like my junior, senior year in high school. Got a scholarship, chose NC State, got my education paid for, which was really what I was looking for an escape and an education my parents couldn't afford. But, you know, I, I learned to love it and, and thrive in it. And uh, Jazz selected me, and I came full circle when I entered a game against the 76ers my rookie season and got to shake hands with the great Dr. J before he proceeded to kick my ass. <laughs> uh, I bet you didn't know that they gave a doctorate in dunks. Dr. Dungenstein yeah. would be your your future teammate. Was that yeah. the benchmark that you realized when you're on the floor with Dr. J as, oh, wow, I, I could be a professional at basketball? Absolutely. I mean, I you know, it was one thing being selected, but sustaining that career. Okay, you made it, so now what are you going to do? Now you got to work harder. Um, now you got to learn from these guys who are schooling you night after night, the Larry Birds, Dr. J's. Uh, and so I was a sponge. I was trying to get better every game and and obviously had a really long career, nine years with the Jazz, three with the Timberwolves, and four years in Europe. Um, just a great career and just all part of a great platform that has led me to be able to be a broadcaster and be a, uh, a speaker to corporate, corporate America and internationally and to youth groups. So, you know, the, the reward wasn't necessarily that I played in the NBA. The reward was the fact that all those things have culminated. It helped me continue my life after basketball. And, but along that journey to be able to play with two of the greatest in Malone and Stockton and other great players I played against and Jordan and Clyde Drexler and all those guys. I mean, that's, those are things people just dream about. And when you can take it further than just a dream, it's, it's obviously a, a great part of your story and your, your platform and your legacy. Well, it was an amazing point in jazz history, just a pioneer with the team. You have John and Carl with you, but also Ricky Green, Mark Eaton, you have Jerry and Frank you said in the last time that we had a podcast with you, you were playing home games in Las Vegas, testing yeah. out that market to where you reach the 88 playoffs and you're going toe-to-toe against Magic and those Showtime Lakers. What was that like? And what did you take away from starting your career with a fledgling franchise to where they got more stability uh, toward your end of the run with them? 
Well, I didn't know any better when I first came to the league because um, all I knew was what guys told me. I mean, um, Daryl Griffith pulled me aside and said, listen, I, I won a national championship as well as you did. When he came out of Louisville, he said, we're both used to winning, but you got to know what you're coming into here. You know, we haven't won a lot of games, so don't let that upset you because uh, you know you're, you're used to winning. And there's a couple of guys who have won, but um, I need to just prepare you for a long season. And so um, that's where I learned kind of the history of Jazz moving from New Orleans and struggling, and uh, you know the story about Frank Lake getting phone calls about what time the game is, and he says, "Well, what time can you make it?" And so uh, it was really refreshing to me hearing all that stuff. And then here we go making the playoffs for the first time in the Jazz's uh, history that year uh, to be a part of that and then part of the playoffs every year since that, that I was here in eight years. So it was, uh, it's, it's great to reminisce on that stuff and, and know that know now that you were part of that pioneering period. You were an integral part of it, along with a lot of other guys. Uh, you know, Larry H. Miller coming in, saving the team from moving out of Salt Lake City, you know, after testing the waters in Vegas with the Battlestones. I mean, just all that stuff. You look back on and say, wow, you were a part of that and hopefully a part of, you know, building what we know now is a great, great jazz nation, Utah fan base um, that's spread outside of the state. And you look at other arenas and there's always part of jazz nation there uh, in, in jazz gear. What steps did it, did your teams have to take from just fighting for victories day to day to where you were participating in the playoffs pretty consistently? Well, I think each coach is different. Obviously, I started with Frank Layden, and Frank was uh, he was a great coach, but he was such a great person that didn't take his job too seriously, uh, was able to, to weave some calmness in difficult times, some humor, uh, was able to keep us uh, in the mind frame that, yeah, we're struggling right now, but there's other people out there doing a lot worse than we are. Um, and so he was really great at that and keeping our spirits up, which made us want to play harder for him. And then when he handed over the reins to Jerry Sloan, just a whole different dynamic and a, a guy who was a tough player and brought that toughness to his coaching, surrounded himself with, with uh, great assistants like Phil Johnston, Phil Johnson. And, uh, always knew that he was smart enough that to know that he didn't know everything. So it was just a great dynamic having those two guys at the helm to teach and coach in different ways. But the same philosophy, there was a toughness to our teams that was unmatched by a lot of teams in the league and, um, and a smartness right, that we had to have. We weren't fancy. We weren't showboaty. We were just hard-nosed. There's no better pick-and-roll ever put together than a Carl Malone 
John Stockton pick and roll. It always worked. You knew it was coming, but nothing you could do about it. And then, you know, the Jets continued the day to have a philosophy that their system works for a lot of guys. You don't just need, you don't just cater to one or two stars. Everybody can reap the, the benefits of, of the philosophy of what they do here. And it's just a great, great to be a part of that and to see us advance. I wasn't here during the, the couple of years where the Jazz had an opportunity to go to the to win the championship as they went to the finals, but um, you know I think they're they're back at that place now where they can move forward and try to enjoy uh, some of that again. What's a legendary John and Carl workout story that you know? Oh my God! It was like a uh, it was like <laughs> a competition between those two of who could come in the best, in the best shape. Um, and it was, they didn't really work out together, but they kept tabs on what was going on. And other guys like me and, and some of the other guys, uh, we were part of that competition as well, because we knew those guys were going to come in ready. And Carl had really at that time, uh, what he was doing to prepare himself was really ahead of its time, you know, strapping a parachute on and climbing a mountain running track with, you know, heavy stuff pulling you in the other direction. I mean, he was always, always prepared, and you could tell he came with something different every single year uh, to the court. So did John. John was just a gym rat, and that's really all he wanted to do was play basketball. So you knew that he was going to come in in the best of shape as well, and and. A lot of people don't know that, you know, some there were some games where these two guys were only, you know, maybe 70% ready to play because of injuries and stuff. But you would never know it because they didn't want to miss games. Today you got guys, you know, who just they need to rest, who can't play back-to-backs. When the games form, those two guys, they, they're the model of, of what it means to go out and give it your all every single night. Why did you choose to come back to Utah? What made Utah the place for you to, to set down roots and make your home? I really never left. I mean, I was traded. Right. Traded to Minnesota, went over to Europe, but I really never left the city. Uh, never left the state of Utah. One, when you marry a local girl, you're going to put down roots anyway. And uh, that was established when I married my wife, Cindy, from Richfield. Um, that's a whole nother podcast, probably. But, uh, you know, uh, the fans have always been great to me. And, you know, once you establish those roots and once you are around a certain kind of people that just welcome you, and it, it feels like home, and it's always been home. So after 30 years, I'm still here, even though I played in other places. And so been able to raise raise my kids here and thrive here in business and just hopefully give back to a great community that took care of me so well. How have you approached your job as an analyst? Does it change when it comes to game to studio? What What is that preparation like for you? Well, it, first of all, you hit it on the head. It is preparation. There's a sort of preparation that has to go into it. Um, one, the knowledge is already there. I played for a long time, and 
I know the game very well. I know that there's new things that come into the game. We talked about analytics and how that plays a big role today. But a lot of times that, that those analytics come from a lot of guys who weren't necessarily players as much as they are experts on, you know, what works numbers-wise and what doesn't work. It's kind of like that money ball uh, theory in baseball where you look at the numbers and you, you kind of put your team together based on um, what's what works and what doesn't work. And there's an important there's there's really room for that and importance to that. But I think as a broadcaster now, um, I, I think people understand that I did play and I was a successful player, and they like to know uh, that take on the game um, because our fan, NBA fans, especially uh, Utah Jazz fans, are very astute. They know the game well. They know what kind of team they have. Um, so my job is to just help them understand why something is going on. My job is not to coach. You've got a coach already. So my job is not to say, well, you shouldn't have run this play. You shouldn't have put this guy in. It's why I think he did. Why I, th- I thought he ran this play or made this call. Because I'm not sure there's, there's any instance that I haven't learned about or been a part of when I played. Um, all the way down to locker room stuff and what I feel is going on based on what I've been through, uh, leadership, those kind of things. So I think from that angle, from a color analyst, uh, it's just so easy for me because I've got one of the greatest guys in the business in Craig Bowler, Jack, and one of the, one of the greatest guys in the business in the prehab and post and Lemma Harrington. So it, it makes it easy when you have a relationship with those guys and you work off of each other and it's a natural fit. And it really becomes a conversation with um, the public that are viewing. It's just a conversation and, and you you broadcast like you're including them into that conversation. So it, it's just really been fun to learn that over the, the years and hopefully get better at it. And, uh, and be entertaining as well. I mean, that's really a part of it is be entertaining and, and not, uh, even though I know who I work for, it's not about agreeing with everything the Jazz do, but it's about talking about why I think it happened or why I agree or disagree with, you know, something a player. I try not to ever throw any player under the bus. That's one of my rules because I played. And, uh, but I still can talk i can speak to them going them struggling a shooting drought you know i'll never say well you just need to stop taking that shot no it's that you know listen i've been in a slump before but now he's got to figure out how to work his way out of it he's got to have the help of his coach and the trust of his team so those kind of things that you know you you have to um you know talk about and get even the opposing people who are watching you that you don't sound like you're just a homer um, because they have great players on their teams too. And it's good to talk about those guys. It's all a part of that, that, uh, that competing dynamic or that rivalry. That's Thurl Bailey. He has a player's perspective 
And from that, you can understand how he gets to the points that he's making on TV. When he's analyzing a game, he's seeing that from not doing the Monday morning quarterbacking of challenging a coaching decision or things like that, but explaining what's happening out there and how mentalities react to difficult situations. He's been there in the locker room, and he shares that perspective every single night. If you want to listen to the first half of our conversation, it is on the Friday edition of Round Ball Roundup last week. So you can combine those two and hear all of Thurl Bailey's thoughts on the Utah Jazz. We discussed where Utah stood heading into the last 28 games and how he sees Utah's vision board for the rest of the season. Ahead, three-game week, tonight against the Suns, Ricky Rubio returns to town after a couple of years in Utah highlighted by that playoff series where he's taking on Russ, frustrating him to the point where he's going off in a post-game press conference. Rubio returns, and I caught up with Joe Ingles, who never has a good word to say about a teammate. The sarcastic Australian had great things to say about Ricky and what he brought to the Jazz in his time here. For me, just playing with him in Barcelona and then seeing him and playing against him over here and then getting an op- another opportunity to play with him and um, both being a lot older and mature and um, just a great great teammate um, on and off the court um, an unselfish guy that, that wanted everyone to be really good around him and um, he obviously made a lot of us better the, the time that he was here off court he was he, he's obviously like family to me playing with him for, and knowing him for so long and Knowing my family, my kids, um, the kids love him, and um, yeah, just a, a pleasure of a person to have around. How important was he along that playoff run that you guys made to the second round? Yeah, I mean, he was huge um, in the playoffs um, all season long, but but obviously in the playoff, his experience, um, he's just kind of a, a cool and collected guy. He, he knew what to do, when to do it. He knew who to get involved, who to go to. Um, defensively, obviously, he, his defense kind of speaks for itself. And um, yeah, he's, I mean, he's, he was a huge part of, of our team that year. And um, yeah, that, I guess that kind of second round run that we had. If you thought that was nice, and frankly, on the sliding scale of Joe Ingles being complimentary to teammates, that's an 11. Quinn Snyder continued it when he was asked about what he enjoyed of Ricky Rubio. What didn't I enjoy? He's. You know, you, there's certain players that, you know, you just have respect for. And I, I think it's not to diminish any of the, the guys we've had or the guys we have now. Um, but I think I think the guys on this team you know, appreciate someone that competes the way he does and wants to win. Um, you know, I got a chance to you know, communicate with him this summer. I was really happy to see you know, that team that he led Spain win the world championship and you know, look back and there's certain guys you know you'll be close with for you know, it's beyond basketball you know so Ricky's having a good year down in Phoenix 12 points four rebounds eight assists it's working with him and Booker in the backcourt that team's fighting to get into the eighth spot of the Western Conference Same scenario when it comes to the way Utah played San Antonio. Suns coming off of a victory against the Bulls last time out. They haven't won two straight games in a month. 
Last time they did it, it was January 18th. They beat the Celtics and the Knicks. We'll have a full video honoring Ricky Rubio online at Utah Jazz on social media. You'll be able to find it. Then Wednesday, a national audience for the Celtics as they come to town. That'll be a charge day with Gordon Hayward and Ennis Cantor coming back. The Seas played a highly entertaining game on Sunday against the Lakers. Jason Tatum was the best player on the floor. And this was one that had Anthony Davis and LeBron James out on the hardwood. LBJ posted an Instagram post game where he hashtagged Young King in reference to Jason Tatum. Tatum scored 41, had to deal with double teams first time in his entire career, and he did it all without Kemba Walker on the floor. Walker's dealing with a sore knee. Marcus Smart had to play instead of him. Before they take on Utah, they've got a battle with Portland. Tatum's taking that leap in year three, coming out the same year as Donovan. You know, the comparisons will be thrown back and forth. Who do you want? Tatum Mitchell. It's a spot where both are in the right places. Donovan's in the right scene here in Utah. How he's accepted this place as his community. How he's grown under Quinn Snyder. They're both in good places for their respective careers as they continue to grow from first-time All-Star appearances. Week wraps up with the Wizards on Friday, and that ends the homestand as Utah will go out on the road to the East Coast starting on Cleveland, then New York, Boston, Detroit. We'll have a full preview of the Washington game on Friday, so stay tuned for the next edition of Round Ball Roundup. Once again, you know where to go iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. Let people know you're listening to the podcast. Five stars, nice reviews, that's all I ask of you. I'm JP Chunga, and until next time, bye for now.